There is a question that is asked over and over and over again, and it sounds like this. Who am I and what is my purpose? Who am I and what is my purpose? That question is asked over and over and over and over again. In fact, if you do a Google search, there will come results of books and audio and YouTube videos and websites and blog articles. There are enough resources for every person in the entire world to have more than one dedicated just to them. That's how much this question is getting asked. More than 7 billion responses on Google if you ask that question. Who am I? What is my purpose? And people are, are, are looking all over the place trying to figure that out. They're trying to identify what is it that makes me me? And a lot of times they're, they're focusing on individual things, right? What, am I, what are my skills? What, what are my attributes? What are the things that make me distinct from other people? What are the things that, that really make me me? Who am I? And then what do I do about that? And it just comes up over and over again. They're searching for their identity. And what I want to point out this morning as we return to First Peter, as we work our way through the book of First Peter, is that this is an identity section here. Okay, so I want to read this to you. This is First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He, he, he begins with this, but you are. You are. Who am I? What's my purpose? You are. And as, as we look at this, what I want to recognize is that this you is not uh, you as an individual, but you as a group. You as a group are. In fact, when we think of identity, though most of the time we think of identity in terms of who I am, what we recognize is that identity is a corporate thing, right? It's who do others see me to be? Or who do I identify with? What group do I identify with? Am I a quilter? Am I a musician? Am I a doctor? Am I an electrician? How do I relate to other people? In what way do I express myself to other people? Who is it that I am? And so when you're going into high school and you're going into college and you're looking at what is it that I want to be? Lots of times you're searching for your identity, both who am I right now and who is it that I'm becoming? Where is it that I'm heading? What is my identity going to be for the rest of my life? And he begins, but you are. Last week we, we were talking about this distinction, right, between those who accept Jesus and those who stumble over Jesus. So last week it, it, we read verses 4 through 8 and it said, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And we talked about how Jesus is like this stone, and when you come to Him, you can say, Okay, I accept Jesus. I accept Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth to die for the sins of people who are separated from God by their sin. I believe that about Jesus. And so I'm going to plant my feet and I'm going to build my foundation, my identity on Him. That's one option when you come to Jesus. The other option is that you come to Jesus and you see Jesus as this, as this living stone and you go, nope, I'm going to build something else. And you take Jesus and you cast Him aside, you reject Him, and you begin to build your own house. Your own thing. And it says in verse 7, So the honor is for those who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. All people have this sin issue and this separation from God and our natural tendency when we come to Jesus and we're faced with this Savior who is going to judge us for our sin or forgive us of our sin, what lots of people do when they arrive at Jesus is they say, oh, you know, I appreciate the offer, but I like my sin. I like my sin. I don't want to change who I am. I recognize that if I accept Jesus as my Savior and He becomes the foundation and I become part of His house, I'm going to have to change my identity and who I am and I really like who I am. Or it's easier. Or it's more comfortable. And so I'm I'm going to cast Jesus aside and reject Him. And so they stumble over Jesus. Because they, the way that uh, John chapter 3 puts it is because they preferred to stay in the darkness where their sinful deeds wouldn't be seen. You see, when we come to Jesus, we have to acknowledge, yes, I have sin, and it becomes exposed. We have to acknowledge before God, this is my sin, and I, I am admitting it, confessing it to you, and repenting of it, trying, to, wanting to change. There are people who get to Jesus and they don't want to admit that. They don't want to confess that there has been any sin. And so they, they, they just hide it and they go, oh, uh, it's okay, I don't need a Savior. I don't need a Savior. Because I don't have a sin problem. I mean, I make mistakes from time to time, but I don't actually have a sin problem. By and large, I'm a good person, and so I don't really need a Savior. And so they cast Him aside, and they reject Him. Others just really like the stuff that they're doing in the dark, and they don't want it to get exposed. They don't want to have to change it. And they say, I'm just going to stick with this. I recognize that it's sin, but I prefer the sin. And so they reject Jesus and cast Him aside. So we talked about that a little bit last week, but what we want to focus on this morning is for those who who say, okay, yes, I have planted myself on Jesus. He is the foundation stone, and I'm being built up like a living stone into a spiritual house, along with others who also believe in Jesus. We're all being fitted together as this spiritual house, this place of worship for Jesus. And now he begins to unpack that a little bit. Okay, what does this mean exactly? Who does this mean that you are? If you have accepted that Jesus is your Savior and you come to Him and say, yes, Jesus is my Savior, I identify as a Christian, a forgiven sinner, then now who are you? 
He says, this is who you are. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. But you are a chosen race. Now, I I have to acknowledge here that when we get to the words a chosen race, that's um, not very pleasant language, right? Because if we say there is a chosen race, then what that means is there are a lot of other races that aren't chosen, and this becomes racism very quickly, right? But what he's doing is he's quoting from Scriptures, he's pulling from Scriptures in the Old Testament where God has said, these are my people, the Israelites are my people, these are my chosen people. This is my uh, chosen race, my royal priesthood, my holy nation. These are my people. In Deuteronomy 7, it, puts it, uh, it says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set His love and, on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your forefathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love and with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. God had, had said, you are my chosen people, Israel. You are my chosen people. And I'm going to take you out of Egypt and I'm going to bring you into a land that will be my land. This will be my place. You will be my people in my place with my presence with you. That's who you're going to be. You're my people. You are my chosen race. But as Peter now is using this same language, everybody knows this language is referring to the Jews. This language is referring to Israel. Those are God's chosen people. But who's Peter writing to? You remember way, way back at the beginning of verse 1 of 1 Peter? Peter, an apostle of, of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect... Right to those who are uh, the chosen ones, to to those who are exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, uh, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's writing this not just to one place, not just to one people, but to people who are dispersed all over the place. He's writing to a, a geographically wide area of people from multiple cities, from multiple backgrounds, and even within those cities, people from different races and backgrounds. So when we're talking about a chosen race, as it uh, refers to in 1 Peter, we're not talking about an ethnic race. We're talking about a different category of people. This is hugely important to understand because when we are talking about race most of the time, we're talking about serious identity stuff. right? People who are identifying with skin color, or they're identifying with uh, ethnic background or traditions or, or something along those lines, and they're saying, this is who I am, or this is who you are. 
Very personal stuff. Very personal stuff. Because people are being categorized according to their race. Some of the things they want to claim, yes, this is who I am, this is my identity, and some of which they are being told by other people, this is who I believe you to be. This is what I believe your identity to be because of your race. But what... What Peter is doing here is he's applying this not to skin color and ethnic background. Not because of whose parents you were, but because God has chosen you, called you to be His people. Now, therefore, all who call on Jesus are this chosen race. It's a global thing. Right? There are people all over the world in the Middle East, in North America, in South America, in Europe, in Asia, in Australia, all over the place, there are people who say, yep, I am a Christian. So whether you're living in Africa and you say, I'm a Christian, or you're living in the Pacific Northwest and you say, I'm a Christian, all of those people are the chosen race. A people that are set aside, made unique because of God's calling on them. Because He has said, you are my people. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. We, we are, are, are distinct, set, set apart from, from other people because God has said, you are royalty. How can that be? How does one become royalty? You're brought into a royal family, right? Well, we are adopted by God through uh, Jesus to be a part of His family. So when King Jesus is royalty, we, by association with Him, are also royalty. We're a priesthood. We talked about this last week. That we are a priesthood. We are along with Jesus uh, interceding for other people and helping them find their way to God. We're, we're making Him known and proclaiming who He is. We are a holy nation. Now this, again, right? The, this idea of a, a sanctified or a holy nation. Very popular today. Not in this kind of a context. In fact, I, I find Christians very often wanting to identify with a nation and say, this nation is special. This nation is God's chosen nation. But that's not what he's referring to here. He's not referring to the United States in this. He's not referring to England in this. He's not even referring to Israel in this. Peter is taking that same language that used to be applied to Israel, he's now applying it to all Christians of all ethnicities, wherever they are. Remember, these are sojourners and exiles. These are people who aren't living in a land. There is no nationalism for these people. Because they're living as foreigners in a different land. But what he's saying is, as foreigners in a distant land, you are a holy nation. For wherever you are, whether you're in Kenya or Canada, you are a holy nation. Because you're Canadian? No. Because you're one of God's people. Because you're one of God's people. 
I, I want you to, to identify this, that as he's talking about this, um, this identity language, you are, he starts picking some of those things that we most quickly identify with. My race, my nationality, who am I? Well, I'm a white American. That's like deep into my identity. But that's what he's going, nope, you're a Christian. You're a Christian Christian. That's who you are. You're one of God's people. It overrides whatever other identity you might have. This overrides that. You, you don't remember when you became a parent? Some of you are, are parents here and you remember when you became a parent. You had other identities before you became a parent. You used to like sports. You used to have hobbies. You used to do things that were fun. You used to be an interesting and funny person yourself. Now you're tired. Because when you become an, a parent, your identity as parent overrides many of your other identities. It's almost as if you weren't any of those other things anymore, because now you are a parent. And so that has to come first. The same thing is here. Yeah, you still might have other lesser identities, but this one overrides all of those. You are one of God's people. When you came to God and when you came to Jesus and you said, I am going to plant my feet on Him. He is my foundation. Then you become one of God's people and now everything else is impacted by that, that identity first. It's as if nothing else matters because you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for His own possession. That one sums up the others and all, packages them all together. That you are God's people. You belong to Him. Everything else doesn't matter. Who are you? I belong to Jesus. Who are we? We belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. It's a community thing. We as a group of people who believe in Jesus, whatever other things might be different about us, this is one of the crazy things about the church. Whatever, things, whatever other things might be different about us, here, when we come here, we are united because we are united as God's people. So all of those other things, all of those other things that separate people, that cause schisms and division between them because they grumble and disagree about stuff? You see this all the time. The news is like made for this. They're highlighting schisms and division all the time. But when we come here, all of those other things, we recognize that's lesser. Though I may disagree with you about absolutely everything, we agree on this. Jesus is our Savior. And so all the rest of them don't really matter that much. I'm going to love you. I'm going to support you. I'm going to encourage you in this place because we are united in Jesus. Whatever else we may disagree about. Then he comes to purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 
how often our purpose and identity just bound up with each other, right? What The thing that we do with who we are, they're bound up with each other. And so what he's saying is, okay, you are God's people. You are his possession. And so therefore, this is what you do as God's people. You proclaim his excellencies. You make known how wonderful and how amazing he is. And I know some of you who've been in the church for a long time go, I knew it. We were going to get to evangelism. I knew it. You were going to tell me that I had to go tell people about how, who Jesus is. That's what it means. Yep. That's what it means, in part. It, it means that wherever you are, whatever you happen to be doing, you are going to pro- be proclaiming His excellencies. When you come here on Sunday morning, we proclaim His excellencies. How great He is. When you get together with your life group, you proclaim His excellencies. When you're at home having dinner with your family, we proclaim His excellencies. When you're out with your neighbors and you're talking with them, we proclaim His excellencies. When you're talking with co-workers, everything that we do is impacted by this thing, that our primary identity is we are God's people, and therefore we're going to be proclaiming how wonderful He is. It's just, it's just going to happen. The more we identify, this is my primary identity, the more that's going to take place. And the more that it takes place, the more we're going to identify with this as our primary identity. They'll talk about habits, right? If you want to make a habit your own, if you really want to do it, that has to be your identity. You have to be not just a person who happens to get up and go running, but you are a runner because runners do more running than non-runners. It's the only difference between them. <laughs> People will ask me, are you a runner? I used to be a runner. I'm no longer a runner. Why? Well, I stopped running. But when we do the thing that we identify with, it reinforces our identity. In fact, there are people who are trying to create their identities by doing things, and it's working. They decide, you know, I want to quit doing this thing, and so I'm going to do this other thing instead. I'm going to quit eating so much, and so I'm going to be a healthy person, and I'm going to eat only vegetables. Some people do that, John. This is not an identity that John identifies with. <laughs> we, but we pick something and we say, this is who I am going to be, and we begin to do it, and it reinforces it, right? But here, G, uh, Peter's not telling us, look, if you'd like to be one of God's people, then just pretend to be one of God's people until you become one. What he's saying is, when you have come to Jesus and accepted Him, this is your identity, You can try and hide from it. You could try and change, but it's not going to work because this is deep down who you are. You could pretend to be something else, but in reality, this is who you are. You are one of God's people. You can't change that. We are called so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you 
out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you remember when we were talking about John chapter 3 and those who preferred the deeds of the darkness and so they hid in the darkness? They hid in that place of sin? You've been called out of that. I, I saw a similar thing to this because growing up, um, my family, my, my grandparents were uh, believers. My, my grandfather was a missionary and a, a church planter. And, um, and so he taught his kids to follow Jesus. And so, so this was just a major part of what it meant to be a Tatama. When we got together for family reunions and things, when we got together for Thanksgiving, when we got together for Christmas, we were always talking about Jesus and proclaiming his excellencies. And people were invited into that. And so I never knew who was going to show up. Most of the people there I would be related to by blood or by adoption. But there would always be some weirdo. Because my aunt or my grandmother or sometimes my parents would invite this weirdo to join us. To me, they were a weirdo. To my parents, they were now family. You've been brought in. You are now a Tatama. As long as you're here with us, you are a Tatama. And here's what it means to be a Tatama. I saw more people, more weirdos, cry at Tatama functions because they were being adopted into a family. And they were coming from a family of dysfunction. They were coming from a family of brokenness. They were coming from a place where people had heaped abuse on them or rejected them. A people, a, a people who had, had said, I, I don't want to have anything to do with you. People, they were very alone and they come and now they're brought in and told, you are now a Tatama. And growing up as a kid, we just accepted that. Okay. Now they're a Tatama. And sometimes they came for one event and sometimes they came back year after year. And the more they, they were there, the more we identified them as Tatamas. And now I have no idea who's actually a Tatama and who's not. <laughs> Do you know that same thing happens in the family of God? That was just a small um, representation of it, but it happens in the church all the time. I see all the time people making their way into the church and they find children that they didn't ever have before. They find parents that they haven't had before, the kind of parents that they have been longing for. They find grandparents that they never knew, but now they have grandparents in the church because this is a, that kind of place where you are now one of God's people. You've been brought out of the darkness that was before and into this marvelous light that makes people cry because it is so wonderful. That's what you've been brought into. And when you've been brought from that place of darkness into that place of light, it's very easy to talk about how wonderful this is. You wouldn't believe how wonderful this group of people that I've just found is. You wouldn't believe how merciful God is who brought me out of this place of brokenness into this place of awesome wonder. 
This place where God's people love one another and care for one another and support one another and encourage one another and bear with one another when they sin and when they have other burdens, they lift them up and they carry them through. What kind of a place is this? People from all kinds of different backgrounds, from all kinds of different races and ethnicities and all kinds of different nations, all coming together with this kind of love and this kind of unity. What kind of God must there be who can do this kind of work? Not just in this place, but all over the world, this is happening. What kind of a God must we serve who loves people in this kind of way that He brings them out of brokenness into a marvelous light and brings them into His community? You are now one of God's people. And this is who we are as His community. We have been brought out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people. This is verse 10. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you hadn't received it, but now you have. Once you were not, but now you are. Do you remember what that was like back before? Back before you had received the mercy of God? Back before you were one of His people? Once you were not, but now you are. Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 2. And he talks about this, this change that happens. Beginning in verse 1, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, the things in which you once walked. But then in verse 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, when, even when we were dead in our sins, spiritually speaking, God saw us and though there was nothing in us that deserved it, He said, I am going to take you and I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to clean you up and I'm going to bring you into this glorious place. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Made us alive together with Christ. Because of his great grace. How great and awesome is this God. Who loves us so much. That he sent his son to die on the cross for our sin. So that whoever believes in him won't die, but will have eternal life with Him. How great and awesome is this God. My hope for you is that this will be your primary identity. In reality, in your own mind, that this will be your primary identity. 
Because if you believe in Jesus, this already is the overriding identity. But for some of you, you are prioritizing differently. So you are a father who happens to be a Christian. You are a businesswoman who happens to be a Christian. You are a musician who happens to be a Christian. Rather than a Christian who happens to be a neighbor, be a friend, be a co-worker, be a parent, be a spouse. We are first and foremost followers of Jesus. I thought it was interesting recently Kanye West has come out and said, I am, I am now a Christian. And whatever you think of Kanye and his background, and whatever may happen in the future, when Jimmy Kimmel asked him, would you now consider yourself to be a Christian music artist? His response was, I'm just a Christian everything. And with that, I agree wholeheartedly. Because now, we are Christian everythings. Let's pray. Father, we ask, would you make this our identity? That we are your people. Father, some of the time our identity drags us down because we identify with our sin and we identify with the darkness. Father, help us to instead recognize that we have been transferred out of the darkness and brought into your marvelous light. Father, sometimes we identify with wrong things. And so we ask, would you help us to identify with the right things? That that would be our overriding identity, who we are as your people. Father, sometimes good identities get in the way of the great identity that we have in you. And so, Father, I pray that you would uh, help us to identify first and foremost as your people. And then from that, do the other things. Lord, we ask for this because of your great mercy, the great mercy with which you have already loved us. We ask that the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives would transform our minds. That we would be assured that we are your children brought into your family. And I pray that as your people then, we would be bold to proclaim your excellencies first here and then wherever we may be. Because we believe you have done a great thing for us and it is marvelous in our sight and worthy of our praise and admiration and proclamation. And Lord, we ask now that as we continue to praise you, that you would receive this glory in Jesus' name. Amen.